I again I wouldn't touch US stocks with a 10-foot pole here just because I don't I'm not smart enough to know when this market's gonna correct but I don't want any part of it when it does Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with macroeconomic researcher Stephanie Pomboy. If you haven't yet watched part one of our discussion with Stephanie, in which she lists her reasons why she expects the markets to correct by at least 50% within the next year or so, head over to our channel at youtube.com wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment perspective that Stephanie and our partners at New Harbor Financial share in this video. And don't forget to support this channel by first liking this video and then clicking the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. If everyone watching right now takes these two simple steps, it really does help this channel reach a lot more people. Okay, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Stephanie Pomboy. Let's now switch to um, what I think a lot of our viewers are watching or asking, which is, hey, if this is what Stephanie's thinking about the future, right? <laughs> Lots of risks, um, potential for interest rates to rise in the near term. Maybe that's the trigger. Maybe it's you know China. Maybe it's whatever. But we get this. Let's say Stephanie's sixty plus percent correction in the markets. Um, what asset classes? look favorable to you in this current environment and also which asset classes would you stay away from given your yeah. macro outlook well i'll just tell you how i'm personally positioned um i own no u.s equities other than those of gold mining companies um, and even those represent a fairly small share of my portfolio um, the largest share of my portfolio is physical gold which i don't have in my in my uh, backyard, but in terms of, you know, I, I have that via paper um, vehicles, but um, tied to the physical metal rather than the, the miners. Um, and then I own some exposure to emerging market equities, um, just because I think on a relative basis, uh, they're going to fare better. Um, and then as well, um, some of the commodity producers. So Canada, Australia. Um, the problem with Canada, for example, though, is its proximity to the US, which if we have a major problem, won't inure to its benefit. Um, but in general, I think, um, you know, being long hard assets like resources and gold um, and energy, which I am still bullish on here, um, are, are good plays, safe places to be relatively and emerging markets, you know, you, you'll get hit if there is a correction in global stock markets, just because there's this Pavlovian uh, response that you sell the emerging markets first, yeah. because they're risky um, when they're actually much safer in terms of their financial situation than, than we are. Um, but you'll have to get through that. Um, and then uh, hopefully some, some uh, acknowledgement of reality will come through. Um, so I again, I wouldn't touch US stocks with a 10 foot pole here just because I'm not smart enough to know when this market's going to correct, but I don't want any part of it when it does. Um, I do own some long dated treasuries just because while I think in the near term, the taper has the potential to push rates higher. I don't think they can go much higher than they are right now before something is going to break. And I would note on that side, we didn't talk about it, but uh, briefly, 
even as the stock market before today was hitting new record highs every day, junk yields have started to back up pretty materially. So you are seeing a dislocation between risk in the equity market and risk in the corporate credit market. And I will take the bond market's view on risk over the stock market's view on risk any day. Okay. Um, so that that's something to kind of keep watch on what's happening in the junk market, because again, we, you know, we have such bigger issues right now, but before the pandemic, the corporate credit bubble was the issue that, you know, people were concerned about how incredibly leveraged us corporations were in the share that were trading as investment grade that were really junk. Um, you know, they're just one rung above, above junk. So any backup in rates can push, I think it's over 40% of the investment grade uh, constituents into that junk bucket um, with the potential for real dislocations um, going forward. Wow. And, and I know, you know, as of relatively recently, I think, you know, weeks I'm talking about uh, junk debt was trading at like a 4% handle or something like that. Yes. I mean, it was ridiculously um, uh, cheap. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's not you know, high it, yield anymore. It's yeah, it's not even exactly. You can't even call it high yield debt anymore. Yes. Um, and, you know, it, it was trading lower than the CP, its yield was lower than the CPI. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. For, for the riskiest debt out there. Right. I mean, yeah. just just nutty. Um, so and I'm just curious, the... how, how much has it come up so far? Has it has it come up much? Or are you just beginning to see it move? I think it's moved. I last I checked it, it moved about 40, 50 basis points. Okay. Um, you know, in the span of three weeks, which is okay. pretty which is material. material. I mean, still, yeah. still probably way too low than what's justified historically, but that's a right. decent move in a couple of weeks. And again, it's happened against a backdrop of new record highs every day in the stock market um, and lower treasury yields. So the spreads have actually widened out as well. Um, well I would say um, the reason why, you know, junk is not high yield anymore is because the pensions have have no choice but to buy as much of that as they can to try and satisfy their return assumption so which is um, just the worst thing left. in the world exactly they're going to be left holding the bag on all the most toxic stuff at the end of the day um at which point i think you know maybe the federal government says uh, certainly for all government you know uh, uh pensions we're going to have a minimum uh, holding of U.S. Treasuries, or maybe they'll all the bond portfolio will be made up of Treasuries, so they'll be able to, you know, cr fabricate some demand for Treasuries by imposing some mandate. But they'll be able to do so because people have been so burned by going along all this exotic stuff um, that's just garbage. So yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's just like <laughs> it, it, it's you know seeing the fifty car pileup you know, happen right before it does, right? I mean, you can just, you yeah. can, you can just see the accident in process, but the cars themselves just haven't, uh, haven't reacted yet. Yes. Um, you know, the and, Austrians and the watching. Drivers, the drivers are still looking at the rear view mirror, basically. Yeah, Those exactly. Are, are yeah, policy makers. Exactly. <laughs> they're looking at the rear view mirrors and they're, they're singing karaoke, you know, uh, having right. fun while they're doing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Austrians watching are, are you know, going to think of the, the term malinvestment, right? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. which, you know, I, I like to think of the term malincentive. And I think that that is what Fed policy is doing here is it is um, distorting the signals out there, um, both 
convincing people that risk is safer than it truly is, but it's also putting that spear tip at their back, which says, hey, look, you're not going to get any return if you're anything that's really remotely sane. You've got to right. go out on the risk curve, uh, you know, if you want to meet your mandates or if you're, you know, a senior, you can't just live off your fixed income anymore. You got to go take yeah. more risk if you want to want to actually be able to put food on the table. Um, and, and, you know, just one man's opinion. I mean, I, I think that that's sort of the nefarious nature of where we are in the story with yeah. central bank policy here. Um, and again, that's that's by design. That's not an accident. That's exactly why they did it was to chase people out of safe havens and to Which risk. is why I think it's so nefarious, right? Yes. Like, so, so many people watching these videos would love to say, gosh, you know what? It's just too nutty right now. I just want to sit over here in safety. Well, they've taken out the safety zone. Yeah. Right. You, 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 sadly, you go sit in cash, you get no return. Inflation is eating away at the purchasing yeah. power. Right. Yeah. So you, you really are sort of forced to take an active position in this game, whether you want to or not. And, and that was one asset I, I didn't hear you mention. You mentioned you own some long dated treasuries, but I didn't hear you say cash. Yeah. What do you think about cash's role in a portfolio today? Well, I had cash, but, you know, now with inflation edging up uh, or more than edging up, um, I'd prefer to own gold. I do think that the um, CPI inflation is, I hate to use the word, not transitory, but it's going to be um, less of a problem than I think the markets or, or people who are panicked about it believe. I think the real problem is going to be the input inflation, not the CPI inflation. Um, and I think that for a variety of things that I look at on the consumer and you and I have talked a lot about my views on the consumer and um, I guess maybe just one quick data point on that would be last week we got the latest personal income and spending numbers and what we found out is that consumers have drawn down their saving in order to keep up with the rising cost of everything to the level it was before the pandemic. And they had spent the prior decade building up their saving cushion after the housing bubble burst and they learned the hard way that they actually have to save out of income they can't assume their home is going to save for them um, or their 401k um, so they spent 10 years building that cushion up and they've now brought it back down to where it was before the pandemic i don't think they're going to deplete their saving much further from here um, and they're going to have to um, if companies are going to be able to continue to pass on price increases, much less accelerate the price increases from here. So that's where I see um, the obstacle to headline inflation continuing to run this hot. Um, but I think that the PPI inflation is going to continue. I think that's here to stay in large part because I think energy prices aren't going lower anytime soon, you know, from a policy standpoint here, regulation and policy standpoint to say nothing of stockpiling by China. And as you mentioned, you know, everyone around the globe trying vying for increasingly limited supply. So that's sort of um, where I go on, on that one. <laughs> All right, and, and real quick, just in that point where you, you, you said that you don't think people are going to deplete their savings much further. Um, I, does, how does that manifest? Is that, is that like a buyer strike where they just start buying a lot less? Yeah, I think that um, what we will see, and we've started to see already, is that to the extent that consumers have to pay more to fill up their gas tank and, and their grocery carts, they start cutting back everywhere else. Um, part of the issue um, in terms of the perception right now is that people look at 
a lot of things like retail sales, for example, and they say, look at retail sales, they're up a lot. Well, retail sales aren't adjusted for price. So they're not selling more units. They're selling the same number of units at newly inflated prices. So the point is consumers aren't saying, hey, I'm gonna get two of these because um, I feel so good because my 401k is up 40%. Um, they're, they're buying the same stuff they were buying. They're just having to pay more for it. So I think there's already what we're seeing is that there is a limit. If you look at real GDP growth, it has slowed sharply um, over the last couple quarters. Um, people had that pent up spending, they got it out, and now we've seen a real reduction. And they're not saying, hey, I'm happy to pay higher prices on absolutely everything on the planet. They're being pretty selective about what they'll pay higher prices for. You saw car sales yesterday. They were 18 million units just a few months ago. They're 12 million units today. People will blame the lack of inventory, but the lack of inventory has been manifest in higher prices. That's the problem. People, you know, if you can't buy the car at the price you wanted it, you're just not going to buy it. You're going to wait until, you know, you can get it at the price you want. So I think consumers are already making those decisions. They're just not being recognized because people look at nominal numbers like retail sales and say, look, gangbusters retail sales. Um, not when you look at units. So. Anyway. All right, great. Well, Stephanie, look, I, I literally could continue this discussion for several more hours. Uh, I know you don't have the time. I know we're going to get a lot of people in the comments saying, Adam, why didn't you keep her on for, you know, two more hours? Um, so we'll have to have you on back. I got to go get my workout on, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I would love to do it again. I mean, there's plenty to talk about, and I don't think there'll be a shortage as we move through the next few months, for sure. Yeah, I don't think so either. And, and uh, who knows what will happen, but my gut tells me that your instincts are right and things are going to start picking up from here. Um, Stephanie, for folks who have really enjoyed hearing your insights here and would like to learn more about you and your work, where can they go? Oh, they can go to my website, uh, which is just macromavens, plural, dot com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, although I'm notoriously, um, let's say, terse. I don't, I don't post a whole lot, but I'm quality at, over quantity. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I do, uh, at S Pomboy is my handle. So you can follow me there. And, um, other than that, you know, hopefully I'll get to talk to you more, but, uh, those are the best ways to find me. Other right, than that, but... I'll be, um, channeling my inner JD Salinger and, uh, <laughs> hiding somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Stephanie, thank you for um, coming out of your Salinger uh, cave to chat with us today. And I really do. Um, wonderful discussion. I look forward to having you back on the program again soon. Thanks again for having me. It was a lot of fun, as always. Okay. And now is the time on the program where we bring in the lead partners from New Harbor Financial, the financial advisory firm endorsed by Wealthion. We've got Mike Preston and John Loder. Hi, guys. Hey, Adam. Good to see you again. Hello again, Adam. Well, guys, look, uh, you know, and there's a reason why Stephanie is one of my very favorite interviews. Uh, she just does an excellent job. What another great discussion, a lot to dig into. Uh, most notably, we're recording this segment after Jerome Powell uh, has spoken. Um, it looks like the Fed is going to start tapering 
later this month. They didn't give an exact date, but they said it's going to start later this month. They're super serious about it and will continue through about the middle of next year. But right now, they are not making any commitments to um, actually tightening or raising rates. So um, that's a new piece of the puzzle uh, since the discussion with Stephanie. But let me give you guys a chance just to react to what you heard Stephanie say. Uh, John, why don't we start with you and then we'll get to you, Mike. Yeah, I think she, um, I think she uh, nicely just kind of brought a big picture to kind of uh, really put a um, uh, microscope on, on the uh, extremity that we are seeing. You know, um, for example, she referred to the so-called Buffett indicator, which is a very intuitive indicator measuring uh, stock market, uh, market capitali capitalization as a, you know, uh, ratio or relative to the total GDP of our country. And you know, any elementary student should know that uh, the value of the company should have some physical tethering to the uh, amount of ac economic activity that our country produces. You know, companies get more valuable than the actual economic activity they're producing. Um, well, geez, something doesn't add up there. And she rightly points that we are massively more bloated in, on that measure than we ever have been, uh, including at the very uh, height of the tech bubble. So it's, it's helpful to always just, um, you know, bring things back to that basic, um, you know, math and, and uh, nothing about that says it can't get more uh, bizarre and extreme, but it just speaks to a, you know, a, a law of gravity that eventually will almost certainly kick in to bring that, um, that uh, disjointedness uh, back to reality. And as she, uh, I think, properly frames it, it would likely come in the form of a uh, a financial reset uh, or, or major retreat in, in markets. But uh, because of how levered our economy has become um, and, and, and kind of contingent upon financial assets, uh, it's likely to have some very significant economic spillovers too. Yeah, and I thought that was one really important point that she made, which is, um, you know, she expects interest rates to start going up from here in the near term. And she said the Fed doesn't even necessarily need to start tightening itself. Um, just the uh, the macro issues that we talked about, right? Um, as the liquidity that's been pushing the system up uh, starts draining out, and of course the Fed has now said they are indeed going to taper. Uh, that there are additional effects that could start pushing rates up, even if the Fed itself um, is not tightening the, uh, the the core Fed funds rate yet. Um, so it's going to be very interesting. And you know, she used the word over leveraged economy. Uh, there, John, you know, rising rates are just kryptonite to an economy like that. Um, all right, Mike, heading over to you. Um, anything else to add to what John said? Just looking through my notes, it was, it was a fantastic talk. Re really enjoyed it a lot. She's right when she says the timing is impossible when this bubble is going to burst. But she says, you know, that, that we're in a blow off now and that this is the 37th time or more being sarcastic that she's that she thought we were in a blow off. I'd like to say it's probably the hundredth time that I think that we've seen a blow up here in the last few years. It's absolutely relentless and, and breathtaking. Um, you know, talking about the Buffett indicator that John just mentioned, you know, the, the, uh, on average, the Buffett indicator, a stock market capitalization GDP step, Stephanie said 80%, which is around 16 trillion on 20 trillion of GDP. And with 48 trillion presently stock market, um, Capitalizations, it, she's right. It's about a $30 trillion hit just to get back to long-term averages unless GDP is about ready to explode upwards from here, which is kind of hard to imagine given a whole bunch of different reasons. 
Jeremy Grantham says we're in a, in a bubble bigger than 1999 now. We agree. Stephanie mentioned both Jeremy Grantham and 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 uh, Hunter, uh, who, who's been on here quite a few times, talking about the bubble that we're living through. You know, all of this is to say that we're in really unprecedented times, and, and words don't even really justify anymore just how extreme this bubble is. And uh, none of us know exactly when this blow-off ends. It's hard to imagine how it ends well. And the other thing that's a little bit hard to stomach is just how obvious it is to us and must be to the Fed and central bankers as well at this point. And yet they don't say a thing. I mean, it's, it shouldn't be up to people like us and you, Adam, and your guests uh, on this show to, to point out how extreme and dangerous things are. The Fed must know at this point what's going on. And um, it's a little bit shocking to see that they're not talking about it. Yeah, it is. Well, I mean, I think it goes back to the, uh, what was the guy's name? Jean-Claude Juncker, who I think used to run the, um, the ECB, um, or at least he was some, somewhere involved in the high decision-making over in the, in the Eurozone. Um, and he, you know, basically coming out of the great uh, global financial crisis, you know, was asked sort of that question, hey, why, why were you guys not being more direct with us about how serious things were? And he said, well, because when it gets serious, you have to lie. You know, so I think, sadly, you know, our, our leaders and our policymakers, there comes a point where things get so dire, they feel that they can't be direct um, for whatever reason. They don't want to incite panic. Uh, and I think I'm being generous, giving them that credit, or it just might be that they just don't want to look like idiots. Um, but, uh, you know, the code book at the top oftentimes is, you know, lie to the people. So it's very much probably what we're what we're seeing here. Now, Mike, you mentioned Jeremy Grantham. Um, we mention him from time to time on this program because he is, uh, you know, a, a very respected, longtime investor. Has been very, very successful. Uh, he's sort of an investor's investor. He's one of those guys like Buffett and whatnot that lots of, of people um, look up to and respect. And we've we've mentioned the many other people of his caliber who are also giving warnings about uh, the state of the economy and the markets today. I did just wanna make one correction on your observation there, Mike. He said that this bubble is bigger than 1929, um, you know, which is the the uh, crash that then led into the Great Depression. Correct. Um, yeah. And I'll put up the, uh, the uh, headline for that here. Uh, he called what we're seeing right now a magnificent bubble. Uh, and basically just reiterated his thoughts that this can't end well and that uh, the correction just mathematically as you were going through the numbers there, Mike, you know, is going to be over 50%. And, you know, Stephanie was trying to sort of thread the needle there between that 50% uh, mark and, and David Hunter's much more extreme 80% mark. But guys, you know, when we're talking somewhere between 50 to 80%, you know, <laughs> that is, you know, kind of Armageddon level for a lot of today's investors who are you know, far out on the risk curve, um, having been pushed there by the Federal Reserve because they can't get safer returns and in, in safer or better, they can't get any return in safer assets. And so they're out there reaching for yield. And, uh, you know, it's like the people who, uh, who, who, you know, rush out into the harbor that's gone dry uh, as the waves recede um, when there's been an offshore earthquake um, where it looks really cool and fun. Uh, and they, they rush out to explore the, the now kind of, you know, dry harbor bottom. And then, of course, the waves rush back in as the tsunami caused by the uh, the earthquake uh, manifests, uh, and and they're just you know they're just obliterated. And my fear is that a lot of today's investors, uh, the probability of them getting caught in that kind of trap is scarily high from my perspective. So, John, let's head back to you for a second. So, Stephanie dialed through 
at least how she's positioning her personal portfolio right now, um, struck me that there probably were a fair amount of similarities uh, with you guys. Uh, not not entirely, but but a fair amount. Uh, what was your reaction to her allocation? Yeah, well, very much uh, along the lines of, of how we uh, think folks should be positioned. And it's, you know, I think not surprising when you look at the data and conclude on the data like like she and we do, uh, you know, that most asset classes are dramatically overvalued. So she, uh, for example, mentioned that she is essentially not exposed at all to U.S. equities. Uh, we have very little exposure to U.S. equities and, and they're in very selective areas uh, like natural resources. And uh, what we do have is hedged. She did uh, comment that she she likes natural resources because of the inflation potential. Um, she mentioned that um, she's, uh, I think the single single most uh, favorite asset class that she pointed to was 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 gold, uh, precious metals. And she specifically favors the gold bullion over the miners. We, we like both. Um, we think that the miners just from a, an investment standpoint are, are poised to do very well because of, of their very healthy um, Financial profiles as companies, forgetting forgetting for a moment about what they do, but certainly with the backdrop of, of monetary policy and inflation specter, uh, we think could could have you know a multiplicative uh, move higher relative to the price of gold. But we like them both. Um, she she talked about being um, modestly exposed to longer dated treasuries. Um, yeah, we we can see that that. That could be a scenario that plays out well, certainly if, if we get a deflationary bust here. Um, we think there's just not enough yield in those, frankly, to, to be um, you know, putting too much at risk. Uh, I think where we differ the most is that you know, we right here now believe that cash is a very valuable place to be, not because of its current yield, because it's essentially nothing, but because of the option value, if I could use that term, that that cash represents to deploy into other things that likely would become vastly more attractive in, in a pr protracted inflationary scenario, most notably stocks, um, US stocks even, um, which you know, history has, has shown in, in the few episodes that we have of you know, very rampant inflation. One of the very first casualties, and we've said this before, is, is hyper overvalued stocks. And it's only after they sell off to what would be, would be considered more reasonable levels that they could be very actually good long-term purchasing power hedges. And that's, that's where cash be, can become you know, very valuable. I wanted to kind of just make one one more anecdotal comment. She talked about, you know, um, you know, kind of the futility in some ways of the Fed's jawboning about um, interest rates and and keeping inflation under control. You know, just to put things in perspective, you know, the Fed announced yesterday that they're going to start to begin to taper their bond purchases to the tune of about fifteen billion per month. You know, tapering by about that much. You know, putting that in perspective, and the Fed's balance sheet is eight and a half trillion, roughly. That is less than one quarter of one percent of their balance sheet. It, you know, talk about minutia, and yet the world is hanging on that announcement like it has all the meaning in the world. Or it's either a statement that that they're they're basically signaling just lip service here, or um, really a statement of how sensitive the financial economy has become to even tiny, tiny. Um, blips in, in what the Fed is or isn't doing. It's, it's not a, a good thing. And, and I know the, the, the Fed would like to communicate with confidence and, and reassurance, but that fact alone is, is the, the whole world is, is weighted with, you know, uh, bated breath on a, you know, a, a, a number here that represents less than one quarter of 1% of their, their balance sheet. Um, thought, that, thought that just 
Ferris kind of pointing out in the in the you know realm of uh, relevancy and materiality. Yeah, well, it shows how um, you know uh, completely uh, unstable or hypersensitive this system is. Where you know we're at the point where one one little change. Uh, can it can be that butterfly's wing that sort of you know causes a hurricane or somewhere else along the system? To to use an analogy, you know we just saw uh, we're seeing global supply chains here where you know a, a breakdown in one part of the chain can then create a cascade uh, all throughout the world in a number of different industries. Uh, semiconductor chips being a great example of that, where our, our, our current uh, global supply chains, you know, pre-pandemic. Uh, were highly efficient and highly cost-effective, but they weren't resilient at all. They were really tooled for perfection. Things had to work pretty perfectly for the entire chain to work the way it was designed. Uh, and then if you have a breakage, like I said, it cascades through. I think we're at that point right now in this, this heavily distorted market where everything is literally priced to fantasy. And um, if, if they're if there becomes, you know, something that that goes against that narrative of fantasy, uh, the confidence, you know, could shatter and then it could ripple through the system. I think that's why everybody is so hyper focused on this right now. Um, all right, just wanted to uh, build on a couple quick things you said, and then we'll go back to you, Mike. Um, you talked about the optionality of cash. Um, we just uh, published a, a, a replay video of the panel that I moderated uh, at the New Orleans Investment Conference. Great, great panel. Um, Jim Rickards, Danielle DiMartino Booth, uh, John Nigerian, and Russ Gray. And um, lots of great observations there. But Jim Rickards spent a fair amount of time talking about the importance of cash for its optionality. And he generally keeps about 30% of his portfolio, at least currently, in cash. And he, he really sort of says that's something that's supposed to be sort of a living allocation that sort of breathes, it expands and contracts based upon the macro environment. Um, you know, if we are more worried about a crash risk, well, then he goes more into cash. It, it becomes a higher percentage. If there's corrections in the markets and better valuations to then be had, well, then you start deploying that cash to, to acquire that better value. So um, uh, I, I think a lot of what you, know, you were just talking about there, John, was uh, you know, very copacetic with, with uh, Jim's comments there. Um, and folks, if you haven't watched that video, I'll put up a link to it right here. Um, <clears throat> also, uh, um, uh, the uh, market right now, post Powell's uh, comments yesterday, um, is now back to parting on. Um, in fact, uh, while the world watched this very closely, uh, it didn't really, you know, take the shine off markets right now. Um, prices are still marching higher and higher here. Uh, I'm seeing the world melt with the word melt up mentioned in the media with a, a pretty high degree of frequency these days. I know we've mentioned them a couple of times already, but David Hunter with his very bold predictions, uh, you know, has said, look, this all ends in a colossal epic melt up, one that's going to just, you know, defy most people's expectations. And the reason why he's predicting that is this is the end of a multi-decade secular bull market. He just says you don't get the ends of bull markets, big bull markets like that in the past, they're all characterized by the sort of um, late stage euphoric rush of, you know what, it, it's a brand new world, the old rules don't matter. Uh, and then things, you know, jump exponentially. And then of course, reality kicks in and you get the, the bursting, the violent bursting of the bubble. So who knows, but it's increasingly looking like Hunter keeps calling what's happening here. Um, last, uh, and I'm gonna mention Hunter one more time. Mike, let's go back to you. Um, let you talk about gold here as we wrap things up. Um, 
you know, it seems to happen every time the Fed speaks, you know, gold gets kneecapped and usually kneecapped beforehand. Yesterday was no exception. Uh, we had two kind of, you know, the two days preceding the Fed announcement, gold just got whacked really out of the blue for no really good reason and certainly got whacked hard uh, yesterday morning before the Fed spoke. Um, here we are as folks are digesting the news. Gold's having a pretty big up day today. Now, again, that just might be the way things work, or some people might say they're deliberately trying to suppress the price of gold before an announcement that they know is going to be gold positive, just to try to keep that gold price managed and not reflecting too much the fact that you know the Fed policy is is um, you know uh, injuring the future purchasing power of the dollar. But would love your thoughts about that. Anything else you have to say about the gold action? But one last thing I just want to mention back to our friend David Hunter. Um, he's been fairly bullish on the prospects of gold and the miners. He just tweeted this out um, yesterday. I think gold and silver are completing their short, sharp pullbacks and are ready for a nice move higher. Next stop for gold is 1920 on the way to $2,500 an ounce. Next stop for silver is $26 an ounce on the way to $50 an ounce, just stair-stepping their way higher, miners too. So uh, certainly nothing that's happened recently has caused Hunter to worry at all about where gold and silver are headed in the relatively near future. What are you seeing? Yeah, Adam, I mean, gold continues to have these downside uh, spikes. You know, yesterday that happened, but it's been immediately re repealed today. And yeah, we're up about, um, $30 on gold right now, repealing yesterday's drop. In fact, we're higher now than yesterday's total price range. So it's sitting right at 1800, this, this kind of magnet at 1800, 1794 or so right now in the front month futures, it looks like. So right at 1800. And it continues to have these kind of shakeout moves. You know, we've talked multiple times about the kind of the long multi-month triangular consolidation pattern we've seen in gold since the previous um, swing high in August of 20. This is, uh, there's been two bigger ones that have gone down to like the 1720 area or so. This one yesterday, you know, to my eye, looks like a minor additional shakeout move and we're right back to 1800. I, I, you know, we agree with David that when we break to the upside out of this triangular consolidation pattern that the technical projection is to 2,500 or so. so yeah, we're bullish on it. We think it's a it's a good time to buy if you don't have any or don't feel like you have enough. Nothing, of course, is is guaranteed. But you know, in in a way, we're with Stephanie, uh, who who seems to favor gold even over cash in in in, in many instances. Um, the only thing that would keep us from from having a higher allocation is our our, our continued concern about a deflationary spike downwards that could be a near-term risk for gold, although it's not 100% guaranteed that gold goes down in a deflationary type of environment short-term, it's certainly a risk. But overall, we would not want to play a game of timing with gold. We, we think that it's important to have a core position in gold. And of course, if, the mine, uh, if gold does well, the miners will do well too, and we have a core position in our model of gold, gold mining stocks. Great. And I just want to emphasize that point. If gold does well, miners typically will do very well because they're a leveraged play on, on the price of gold. Um, if you have not yet seen it, we had an excellent uh, video the other day from Jeff Clark, where he gave the wealthy on audience sort of a private 
showing or repeat showing of the uh, the private presentation he gave at the New Orleans conference, uh, New Orleans investment conference, where he went through um, his top mining picks for you know what he considers to be ten bagger or twenty bagger potential uh, companies, you know, stocks that could literally increase by ten or twenty times. That's what happens in the mining space when that sector catches fire. Now, folks, those are highly, highly speculative plays. Uh, it's, it's really for discretionary capital only. But the reason why I'm emphasizing this is um, let's just assume for a second that that Hunter's right and that we see gold go to 1920 and then maybe go above 2000. The miners should do make absolutely gargantuan moves in that case from where they are today. And the reason why I'm emphasizing this is because you have to be positioned in those stocks beforehand. When they move, they move very quickly. Uh, it's the kind of thing that once that sector starts, you know, catching fire and, and those big jumps get made, um, you know, you, a if you're not in, you miss out on those those initial big gains. But then, you know, there's the danger of a you know mania beginning to build on itself, and uh, you know that can be violent but short lived. And, and it's much safer to be positioned beforehand. You know. Get those great big gains maybe start putting some hedges in place maybe start using stops etc like that uh, so that you can try to ride some of the rest of the momentum uh, but you have locked in you know the gains that you've made before and you're not trying to chase the stocks like the rest of you know the late stage investors are um, if you're interested in watching that video from jeff just go to wealthion.com clark all right and john i'll let you have the last words here as we wrap up this uh this week's video yeah, no, I think, um, look, I mean, uh, we, we realize uh, we, we kind of sound a bit repetitive in our comments every week. And, you know, it's just a, um, a, a function of, of what, what's going on in markets. We, we have a sustained, um, crazed bubble uh, is, is the bottom line. Um, you know, I'd just like to call out a couple of, you know. A magnificent bubble, that. if you're looking at Grantham. Yes, exactly. A magnificent bubble. I mean, look at, for example, um, Avis budget rental car company. Uh, that stock is, is I guess, you know, uh, uh, exhibit A of an yet another example of the craziness. That stock, uh, you know, the highest it had ever been in, in history was $409 a share way back in 1998. Okay. That stock in the last two months went from $90 a share up to $545 a share only to collapse down in a matter of days back down to 290. This is not normal, folks, right? Um, we could look at any number of things. We, there was, you know, a, a squid game uh, cryptocurrency that, you know, basically, uh, you know, evaporated out of thin air. Um, the, the examples are, are numerous and, and over and over again. Um, and these are things that happen. These are the signs that happen when markets are at their peak idi idiocy. And that's, we think, where we are. Peak idiocy. All right, well, we're going to end on that. Um, but again, that's a, a very good reason why people should be paying very close attention right now, because uh, when you reach the point of peak idiocy, it doesn't take very long for reality to start reinserting itself and the idiots begin to learn their lesson. Um, if you're a new watcher here um, on this channel, we are big proponents of working under the guidance of a professional financial advisor who understands the trends and the risks that we talked about in this video with Stephanie and that Mike and John and I've just been talking about here. If you have a good one, wonderful. Work with them, give them a call, have them go through your portfolio with you. If you don't though, Mike and John and their team at New Harbor, they offer free 
portfolio uh, financial reviews. Uh, they'll sit down with you. They'll look at your personal situation. They'll hear your goals. They'll learn your risk tolerance, and they'll tell you what they think you should do. Uh, you can do whatever you want with that information. You can, you know, direct your portfolio yourself from then on based on that that advice. Um, or you could use it with your existing advisor, or if you like these guys, there's an opportunity to work with them. But these consultations are completely free. There's no strings attached. There's no commitment to working with them. They just do it as a public service because they want people, as many people as possible, to get well prepared for what they think is coming. All right, folks. Well, look, as we wrap up here, um, if you'd like to see uh, our future guests who are going to be on this program, uh, like Stephanie, uh, just follow me online on Twitter at, at Menlo Bear. Um, I also listen to every suggestion that people make there for new experts to bring on. I want to give a shout out to one of you uh, encouraged me to go uh, approach Ivy Zellman for an, uh, to get a good expert insight into what's going on in the housing market. I just interviewed her. That interview is coming out in a couple of days. Man, she was amazing. So I really do act on the advice that you folks offer there through Twitter. Uh, and then last, if you want to support this channel, and I really hope you do, please just take a second to hit the like button and then click the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Two very simple steps for you to take, but they really do help these videos go out and reach more people. All right. And whatever happens from here, we'll all be tracking it together. Mike and John, thanks again for joining me for another great discussion this week and look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for watching, everyone. Thank you, Adam. See you next week, Adam. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth and because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type, the kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right. With all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.